All right. I feel a little bit more at home now uh, because, well, it's based upon an assumption. My assumption is that there's, a, there's less morning people here at the 11 service than there is at the 9 a.m. service. Um, because the 9 a.m. service, like you start off by making jokes about, you know, that you lose an hour, but they're all morning people. They've already been up for three hours. They like it. They're all, everyone's so cheery, ready to worship. They're not affected at all. And I just went up and said, man, this is a, this is a cursed day. It's a cursed day. But I do truly feel in my heart, it's been a prayer since I was, as long as I could remember that I would live to see the day that daylight savings would be abolished. And I've been praying for it for years. It's so ridiculous. And especially this one, man. So some of you who aren't morning people, even though it's 11 a.m. service and technically you're an hour away from lunch, you are still grumpy getting up, right? Who are you like, like, like see that? Like half, half of this service, just like bah humbug. That's how I am. I'm going to switch the service times, man. It's not, no, we shouldn't do 9 and 11. We should have like 11 a.m. and 2 p.m. church service. It'd be great. All right, make sure first service was recorded and goes online, not this one. Uh, <laughs> So we are, uh, this is a key pivot point in our series. If if you're just joining us, we're going through the book of 1 Peter, tackling it verse by verse, and uh, kind of at the center point where Peter shifts sort of what he's doing. For the first couple chapters, Peter has been talking about a number of things, but he's also been trying to establish who you are in Christ. Like, what's your identity? Who are you? And there's a reason for that, is he understands he's going to talk about your behavior and how you should live as a Christian, but it's important that you understand who you are before you do the behavior thing. Identity is huge. It it is so massive. It's like one of the most fundamental human longings and yearnings. Like we have a desire to to know who we are and where we belong. You can't even tell a good story without talking about identity or having the hero or main character of your story uncover their identity or find out they have a different identity or go through some trial where they get a new identity. It's like in all the stories, just briefly, we've shared this one a lot before. Uh, But I mean, I'm serious. Think about good stories and they all have a discovery of identity. So in this, what movie is this? Not Star Wars, that's it. Okay, you guys know me. We need specifics. This is Empire Strikes Back. Of course it's Star Wars. If I ever show you Star Wars or like Lord of the Rings, man, I need like chapter and verse numbers. Or like, okay. So yes, yeah, Star Wars, but more importantly, Empire Strikes Back. Now, what's the scene? This is the climactic scene where Darth Vader tells Luke what? Now, some of you, I heard it. You said, he said, Luke, I am your father. Now, this is, this is actually a myth. You got it right. One person, you knew the answer. He says, no, I am your father. For whatever reason, like the collective culture believes Darth Vader says, Luke, I am your father. But he actually says, no, I am your father. So you've got to remember the scene. Uh, Luke hasn't discovered his true identity yet. So he's not like Return of the Jedi Luke. He's whiny kind of crybaby Luke. So he's crying. He's like... Yeah, yeah, and Darth Vader's like, did Obi-Wan tell you who I am? Yeah, you killed my dad, man. You killed my father. And then Darth Vader says, no, I am your father. And then Luke's, no, no, no. Oh, no. 
But it's essential to the story. Luke has to discover who he is before he could become Return of the Jedi, Luke. Another uh, movie. Oh, we've got a lot of fans of this one. That was a big, that was a big collective. <gasps> Rafiki. So in, in The Lion King, the main character, Simba, he, he got his feelings hurt because some tragic things happened, and he went off. He left his home, and now he's living with this little rat chihuahua thing and a, and a, a pig. I remember his name. His name's Pumbaa. Um, and he's, he's weak. He's not who he's supposed to be. He just eats bugs. He like doesn't, he's a lion. He hasn't even tasted gazelle. He just eats bugs all day. And then Rafiki comes to him and like, tells him to look in the water and you see your father. And then Simba, I mean Simba, yeah, sees his dad in the clouds. And what does his dad say? What's the key line in this right here? Remember who you are. He goes, you're my son. Just remember who you, Simba is off. He's not being who he is. He has to rediscover his identity before he could go back on mission. Now, this is there's sort of a wormhole that I'm doing here with like your brain because um, in actuality, Simba's dad is Darth Vader. Did you know that? <laughs> Did you know that? As Darth Vader and Simba's dad, Mufasa, this is the same dude. They just look a little different. No, but this is James Earl Jones in both of them. So it's like if you're going to ever talk about father-son relationships, you've got to bring James Earl Jones in to say, like, you are my son. He's like, whoa, yes, Dad. Okay, so something more recent, Moana. Moana's, um, she's, she has turmoil. She doesn't know who she is. She has this sense, this calling. Her grandma dies and turns into a giant stingray, some, some creature. And then towards the end of the movie where she's going to go do the final battle, grandma comes back. And she says, do you know who you are? She has to rediscover who she truly is. Do you know who you are? And then in classic Disney, she just can't answer. She has to sing a song. It's, <laughs> who am I? I am a girl who loves my island. And if you know, some of you already are singing in your head, right? I am a girl in the daughter of the village chief. We're descended from voyagers. Whoa. We found their way across the sea, and the call isn't out there at all. It's inside me. It's like the tide always falling and rising. I will carry you here in my heart. You'll remind me that come what may, I know the way. And then the big triumphant, I am. Oh, someone want to sing it. <laughs> I am Moana. So you see all these stories. It's almost impossible to tell a good story unless you find your identity, or you rediscover it, or you go through some trial, some circumstance where you have some type of new birth experience. We'll end with one last final example, the greatest of all the examples. <laughs> Name is Inigo Montoya, you killed my father, prepare to die. But if you're a fan of this movie, there's something, I mean, it's a humorous movie, it's comedy, right? But is there not something incredibly powerful when that dude is just repeating who he is? I am Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. And over, I mean, it's a funny movie, but all of a sudden you are sucked in and you're like, dude, take this dude out. He's the one who killed your dad. He, he's the six-fingered dude. Kill him. And you're in it. It pulls you in. The issues of identity come in. And so Peter has been doing this now for two chapters. He's been telling you who you are. 
and I just took like kind of like a brief list of the first couple chapters, and he's been telling us that if you are in Christ, you are a Christian, you are a part of a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You're the elect exiles. You are the born-again ones. You are God's obedient children. You are a chosen race. You are his people. You are his sons and daughters. You're the ransom ones. You're the beloved. You feel the weight of all these descriptions being directed towards you. This is who you are. Because of what Christ has done, this is who you are. This is whom you belong to. And now Peter, once he's established that, is going to go, okay, now I'm going to tell you how you ought to behave and how you ought to live. But you can't just jump to, oh, this, this is how you ought to behave without understanding the gospel and the gospel's implications for who you are. So, Peter says, now, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation." So quick clarification, he's saying, sorry, this thing is, I, they told me it was giving me problems in first service, and uh, I think my ears grew or something like that. It's, not, it's just not sitting right, man, so I just keep going. He, he says, you're supposed to, to, to live differently so that the Gentiles, and this is like a Christian way of saying those who are not Christian, when the people who do not follow Jesus see that you live differently they might in turn worship God or become a follower of Jesus or glorify God. And ultimately, this has an, like an end times goal. So the last line is that they see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, when Christ returns, they might be glorifying him rather than facing his wrath. So you live differently in order that others might see your actions and maybe, just maybe, they might become followers of Jesus. Now, this issue of living differently is an issue of living in a holy manner. So you ask yourself the questions, how do Christians live differently? We can ask that, questions about our, uh, ask that question about ourselves in the modern world, like how should we live differently than secular culture? But one of the, the best things that we could do is look at history and say, when Peter was writing this, how were Christians living differently than their pagan Roman counterparts. And maybe how they live differently in that culture might give us insights to how we ought to live in our culture. When you look at the early church, especially the first 200 years after the death resurrection of Jesus, there are three things that come up again and again and again in the pagan literature. And this is why it's incredibly important. It's the pagan literature. So it's non-Christians who worship multiple gods writing to describe Christians. We have, we have the literature. So how do non-Christians in the first 200 years of Christianity describe the believers? There's three things that you'll see come up again and again and again. It's like in everything. It's everywhere. First, the Christians had a radically different understanding of who God was. Two, they had a radically different understanding of their possessions and money. And three, they had a radical different understanding of sexual ethics. And it's this, this stuff's the three things again and again and again. So first, what was different about God? They were monotheists. 
They only believed in one God. That might not seem like a big deal to us today, but 2,000 years ago, it's a big deal. Christians only worshipped Jesus. And more important than that, they said Jesus is the only true God, and he's the only person worthy of worship. Because Romans had multiple gods. They didn't mind if you worshiped Jesus. You just had to worship some of the other ones, too. But the Christians were steadfast in their belief that Jesus was the only one that should be worshiped. Two, the Christians were radically generous with their possessions and their money. In fact, they're known for just, like, sharing with each other everything. If, if, if you need something, well, here. Here, everything belongs to God. So, so if, you, if you need it, how, how, how can I serve you? And then with sexual ethics, they were radically committed to lifelong monogamy. Here's some of the writings we have. This is from Pliny the Younger, early second century. He's writing to describe Christians as they're being tortured and killed because they refuse to worship other gods. He says, there's stubbornness and unyielding obstinacy because they refuse to worship the gods or invoke the gods. One of the things the Christians were forced to do is you burn some incense to Caesar as a god or worship the, the older pagan Roman gods and we'll let you go free if not face the consequence. And Pliny the Younger, early second century, is writing saying, these people are stubborn. They are unrelenting. I mean, why don't they just burn a candle to, to the false god and get on with their life? In describing some of their treatment, Tacitus, early second century as well, mockery of every sort was added to the Christian's death, covered with the skins of beasts. They were torn by dogs and perished, were nailed to crosses, doomed to the flames and burnt. Served, they served as nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Nero, who was the Caesar emperor roughly after the time of First Peter's composition, offered his gardens for the spectacle as exhibiting a show in the circus. So it's just describing the horrible ways that Christians were killed. Now this is fascinating right here. The way Tacitus describes the Christian crime is not just by saying, oh, they didn't worship Caesar, they didn't worship the other gods. He calls their crime hatred towards mankind or hatred towards humanity. Now follow this here. This is 2,000 years ago. When Christians refused the religion of the empire, it was described as hatred for humanity. He who has ears, let them hear. Do you get this? This is 2,000 years ago. There is nothing new under the sun. When Christians refuse the religion of the empire, when they refuse the religion of the general public, the general population or the culture, the accusation is you hate humanity. Now watch this. You proclaim that Christ is the only way and you have strict ethical standards in how you think you ought to behave. One of the first accusations against you is not, oh, you're a Christian, that's wrong. It's that you hate. You're narrow-minded. It's inclusi inclusivity. There is nothing new under the sun. As Christians were radically committed to one God. This is Tertullian, a leader in the, the early church, uh, speaking of 
their possessions and their sexual ethic. He says, we are one in mind and soul. We do not hesitate to share our earthly goods with one another. All things are common among us, but our wives. Kind of weird, right? It's like, I mean, if someone said, oh yeah, we share everything, but not our wives. Well, why would you even, of course. It's weird, like what's wrong with you? You've had 2,000 years of Judeo-Christian values instilled in your culture where monogamy is assumed to be a good thing, which is that ethic is also eroding. But we've had 2,000 years to show the value of that. In, in the Christian's time, when the church was started, like the idea that a man, a man would only have sex with one woman was, was absurd. They had marriage, and you'd commit to monogamy, but most men, especially if you were a wealthy man, you, have, you had mistresses, and that was acceptable. And if you were a wealthy woman, that was acceptable for you too. So the Christians were known for, we're generous with our possessions, we share things, but we only have one wife. Christians, this is Epistle uh, Diagnetus, Christians share their meals, but not their sexual partners. Another writing, but we maintain our modesty not in appearance, but in our heart. We gladly abide by the bond of a single marriage and the desire of procreating we know either one wife or none at all. And so again, when you see people writing about the early church, you're going to see them talk about these three things again and again and again. There's a pastor by the name of Tim Keller. He's a pastor in New York. He's one of those guys who, who whatever you're trying to say, he could say it better than you can. He was like the super articulate people. You just be, man... That's what I was thinking, but you just said what I tried to say in five minutes and 30 seconds. So, Tim Keller, here you go. The early church was strikingly different from, their, from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body and they gave practically everybody their money. So that's what they're known for. That's what they're known for. So Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There's an assumption that the unbelieving world is going to, by default, think bad of you. That's the assumption Peter makes. But as they think ill of you, as they think evil of you, let your works be good, be different and be holy, so that maybe some might have their eyes open, so that on the day of visitation, the return of Christ, they might glorify him as well. Now, Peter's going to ask us to do some things that we're, no one's going to want to do. Like, what's next? No one wants to do this. Um, and the only way you'll do it is if you know who you are, who you are in Christ, what Christ has done for you in the example he gave. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good works you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. 
Now again, at that, that last section, do you see what's, what's the end goal? What's the, what we call the telos? What's the purpose of this? It's so that in doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. You are giving an example. The Christians are going to be accused. Let your lifestyle prove something. Let your actions prove something about you. And maybe, just maybe, good may come of it. Now, this is a difficult section for us because no one wants to obey every human institution, whether it be emperor as supreme or governors that are sent by him. It's, it's every institution. So from, in our like world, from the president to the crossing guard at the local public school, you're to show honor and respect to them. That's the Christian way. We give honor, we, we, we respect, and we do our best, our best to submit to what authorities are placed over us. Now, what's crazy is Peter's writing this to Christians who are facing persecution. And in about five years after this is written, Nero's going to be slaughtering Christians. But Peter can still tell people in that context, you do your best to show respect and submit to the authorities. It's the Christian way. This brings up a number of ethical dilemmas that there's no easy way to solve. I mean, we know for certain the Christians are supposed to submit to the emperor, but when the emperor said, worship me as a god, they refused and were killed for it. So it's sort of like, well, when do you have to obey? When do you not? And there's no easy answer for this. But there are some, some ideas and principles and concepts that were used by the early church that are incredibly helpful for us. So first off, you have to understand that in every culture, there are going to be values and ethics that overlap with Christian values and ethics. So here's an easy example in our culture. Um, do not murder. That's in the Bible. We, if you get mad at someone, you can't just go kill them. In American society, if you get mad at someone, you just can't go kill them. So there's an overlap. In the center where the X is, there are values and ethics that both secular culture and Christians could both affirm. And so we want to do our best to do those well. But there may also be things that culture says to do that you can't because in obeying that authority, you would be disobeying a higher authority, namely God. So if you're supposed to be obedient to every earthly institution, how much more so for the heavenly institution? So let's say you're a Christian in the early second century and you are told to worship another God by a governing authority. We know the Christians didn't do that. That's where they said, we can't in good conscience break our submission to the highest king to honor a lower king. But again, the point is this. You do your best to honor and respect the lower authorities on that institutional hierarchy. Some cultures, there's a decent amount of overlap. Some, there's tons of overlap. Where it's like the culture maybe has been saturated with Christian ethics for a couple hundred years, and they affirm a lot of this stuff. Then there's some places in the world where, man, it's like nothing. What overlap is there for a Christian in North Korea? You don't even get honor your mom and dad in that country. Why? Because if your mom or dad is a traitor to the empire, they're not your mom and dad anymore. You rat them out or face the consequence. So what is there? Like, do not steal, maybe. Just a little bit. Don't steal 
is up there. So, so it's much more difficult, but you do your best in that circumstance. And so as our culture becomes more and more secular and hostile to the Christian faith, there's going to be less and less overlap, and you have to use wisdom and discernment. But Peter would tell you, you do your best to honor and to submit. And however bad we might think American culture is, or how hostile it might be to Christianity, we don't even register on the map compared to the first Christians of how hostile the empire was to them. But yet Peter still says, you better show your respect. You better do that. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. That's crazy. That's like powerful. And you don't want to do that, right? That's like Peter's telling you to do stuff that you don't want to do. I don't, first off, I don't want to honor everyone. No one does. There's, like, there's a lot of rotten people in the world. And honor the, the emperor, that was a difficult task for the first Christians. But yet the command is given. Now, the next section is going to take this even further and be even more difficult. It will be more difficult for us to understand the motivation behind it, although we have to understand we're not in, we're not in the situation that is going to be discussed. It's completely foreign to every single person in this room. But it's going to show us just how far Peter's willing to go with his idea of submission. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Okay, first opening remark. The ESV translates that first word as servants. The Greek here is doulos, and the word can be translated, it, it, there's a spectrum, anywhere from servant or like household help all the way to slave as in a slave who's owned by somebody. And so when he uses this word doulos in the Roman Empire, he's addressing that full spectrum of people. There was tons of different ways people entered into slavery in the Roman Empire. Some people were kidnapped. Some people were prisoners of war. Some people were born into slavery. Some people saw that there was a household with a rich man in charge of it, and the rich man had a bunch of servants, and he treated them really well, and they were stricken in poverty and in debt, and they sold themselves into slavery as a way to get out of their poverty. Some were treated well. Some were treated horrifically. I mean, they're, they're, the literature is clear. Slaves in the Roman Empire were sometimes tortured just for fun to see how far a man could be pushed. And so there's this massive semantic range of this word doulos, anywhere from servant, who has a pretty good life, who might even be more educated than the one who technically owns him, all the way down to the most miserable condition imaginable. Now, this is where it gets tricky. Because Peter says, do loss. Anyone on that spectrum, you do your best as well to submit 
to the person over you. This is problematic. Peter says, do your best to to maintain submission. Now, in history, this verse and this section, as well as a few others, have been used to promote slavery. So you need to know that in American history, there, there was Christians fighting to uphold slavery, and there was Christians who fought to abolish and would ultimately abolish slavery. But you can find a Bible verse to prove whatever you want. Bible's a big book. So whatever side, whatever side people landed on in this debate, there was Bible verses that you could try to use to, to prove your point. The early church had a strategy for dealing with evil. And the institution of human slavery is evil. It's evil. The early church had a strategy, though. And it's not the strategy that when modern people read the text, we want. Because if you're like me, you want the text to say something like, submit to the emperor, and then stay quiet and start a rebellion. And all the rich people who are abusing the slaves you sneak out at night and then you kill them all and you live as free people. Like that's the, that sounds like a good movie to me. That's a good movie waiting to happen. It's like there's an uprising, there's a slave revolt and they take out all the masters type of thing. By the way, that happened. That's, that's, that's times in history that happened and usually it ends really, really bad. You know the whole I am Spartacus thing where thousands of people are crucified so it's like the early church is writing these documents and Christians are less than 1% of the population. Christians are less than 1% of the population and slaves compose about one-fifth of the population of the Roman Empire. Some estimates are as high as a third. So what do you do? Maybe my strategy would be to violently, violently attempt to overthrow the evil institutions. The strategy the early church said or used was this. We are going to focus on making one individual right with God first. And as more individuals become right with God and see a slave no longer as a slave but as their brother, the institution will fall apart from the inside out. So you have to subvert it. Christians don't try to violently overthrow institutions. They subvert it with the doctrine of love and grace. So Paul would tell slave owners what? You treat them as a brother. So it's like, well, what what does that mean? Treat, Treat them as a brother. What does the Christian saying there is neither male nor female, slave nor free mean? What do those things mean? By the way, this is what happened with monogamy in the Old Testament. You ever wonder why, like, in the Old Testament, especially at the beginning, there's, like, tons of polygamy? There's, like, polygamies everywhere. Why? Because every human being at the time pretty much accepted the institution of polygamy. God put some parameters on it and some ethical guidelines, puts that into place, and then if you ever notice, by the time you get to Jesus, Jews do not practice polygamy anymore. But you can't just violently overthrow an institution overnight. It has to be uprooted. Why? Because the institution is a manifestation of the evil in people's hearts. And if you just attack what's at top, it'll, it'll sprout back up again. It's like weeds. 
So Christians subvert something, and then they attack it. Unfortunately, it took about probably 17, 1800, 1900 years too long for Christians to do this. But eventually, Christians led the way in abolishing the institution of slavery. Took us too long. Took us way too long. But it did come around. And what the early writers of the New Testament are going to do is they're going to say, do your best in whatever evil circumstance you've been put in. Do your best to honor everyone to the best of your ability. And when there's a violation of your conscience, you obey God and not man. You fear God. You don't fear men. This is a very tricky thing. Most people want easy, nice, little, neat answers. So it's like, what do you do here? What, do you do? what, what happens when it's this situation? What happens when it's this situation? And the Bible doesn't give you nice, neat answers for every circumstance. It gives you this principle. Do your best to honor and respect And if it violates your conscience before God, then you peacefully resist. Very complicated. I'll give you just just some examples to show you how difficult this is. We're called, and everyone's at a different point in your life. So if you're a young person, what are the, the institutions in your life? Probably your parents and your teachers. Okay, so you're called to honor them and respect them and do your best to submit in those situations. For some of you in the working world, it's it's your employers. We're all under the authority of the police, elected officials, uh, the president. There's there's different levels of authority. And depending upon where you're at in life, you're relating to one of those. But I'll give you an example on how difficult this is. Start with the first thing, parents. Let's say there's a 15-year-old kid who starts coming to the youth group and he becomes a Christian. Becomes a Christian. His parents are stubbornly atheist not open to anything else, and they tell their 15-year-old son, you are not allowed to go back to that church ever again. Well, Christians, you're commanded to go to church on Sunday. So now he's a 15-year-old Christian who has a command that he should go to church, but his parents tell him not to. What does he do? So see the ethical dilemma, right? And the Bible doesn't, it, it gives us this principle, but it doesn't spell everything out for us in black and white. Now, this isn't a made-up story. This ha- when I was a youth pastor, this happened actually fairly regularly. So what do you tell them? Now, again, some, what I'm, I'm going to tell you what we, what we did. And some of you may disagree, and you can argue that and, and try to articulate your reasons why. But you just know that these things are tricky. We told the kid, or I told the kid, don't go to church. You honor your mom and dad. You honor your mom and dad to the best of your ability because my prayer is that you lead your mom and dad to Christ. And you don't want, you don't want them knowing you as the stubborn kid who got more stubborn and bratty and defiant when he became a Christian. So we'll do our best to disciple you and teach you the Bible because you're coming in fresh. You don't know anything, man. We'll do our best to do that and have you maintain a good relationship with mom and dad. In fact, we want your relationship with mom and dad to be better now that you're a Christian so that on the day of visitation, they might glorify Christ. Okay, what happens when the boy turns 18? Or what about this? What if he's 22, but he doesn't pay rent? 
What happens if he's 23, but he pays rent? You see how all, like, it's all these things, and it's like, that's just on one category. Or what about employers? What if you have a, a horrible boss? It's a horrible boss. You honor them. You do your best to be a good employee in order that you might win them to Christ. What happens if your boss asks you to do something that's a little shady? What do you do? Then you go, oh, or what if he asks you to do something that's, it's not super illegal, but it's kind of illegal. Well, then you might have a higher authority that governs that situation, so you can't do it. What about elected officials and presidents? You know, honor them. There's some, poli- man, let me tell you something. There's some politicians I do not like. Can I talk trash about them? Peter would say, no, not as a Christian. You don't get to talk trash about a politician. And you can say, no, no, Isaac, but there's some really evil, corrupt politicians. Peter says, honor Caesar. Fear God, honor Caesar. So it doesn't mean you don't critique. It doesn't mean you don't criticize. In fact, one of the roles of the church is to be a prophetic voice of morality in a decadent culture. So we are supposed to do that. We can critique, we criticize, we judge right from wrong, but we don't get to trash talk. We have to honor. That's difficult. Because some of you get riled up. I get riled up about stuff. I want to talk trash. I like to. I actually thinking talking trash about politicians is one of my spiritual gifts. <laughs> it's like I'm really good at it. I'm, re- I'm really good at it but I don't get to. You're a Christian. You criticize, you critique, you speak truth, but you do your best to honor. So if you're a Christian, you don't trash talk the president. You don't trash talk Donald Trump. You don't do that. You, you can critique if you have some issues. You can criticize if you have some issues. But you don't get to trash talk. And just so you think it's not like, okay, you're standing up for Donald Trump, it, rewind the clock. If Barack Obama was president, if you're a Christian, you don't get to trash talk him. You can critique, you criticize, because the the world needs the church to do that. But we don't get to trash talk. And you got to know the difference. I know the difference. I know the difference because when it's just critiquing and criticizing without the trash talk, I'm not having fun. (laughs) Peter would say, Don't you know that half of America thinks the person you're trash-talking is awesome? And before they ever get to hear your criticisms or critique or what you think Christ might have about that situation, they've already written you off as a jerk because of your disrespect for someone that they value. So you do your best. You do your best to have a good conscience before God. You critique and you criticize. We're all at different places in life. For some of it, it's difficult relationships with parents or employ, employers. We're all, we're all called to be under the authority of the police. There was an accident, accident by my house yesterday, and um, the police were there, and they have their lights on. And uh, it was just unbelievable. Uh, my, I don't think my neighbor's at this service, but we were out there because we heard it. And we came out, and it was shocking to see, okay, you have an accident, and there's, the lights are on, and people 
are still kind of driving fast by the scene. Now that's interesting because most of the time people slow down and it's really annoying, but this wasn't a freeway or anything, it was just a normal street. But it's like, in the smallest thing, you know that if there's like sirens or even if there's construction going on, you're supposed to what? Slow down. And it's like our, our society is like, if I'm not going to get caught, if I'm not going to get busted, I don't have to respect the authority of the police. And Christians need to be the best at things from the smallest to the largest. You, you do your best. You do your best. It's, it's like, it's, we're just, our minds were blown. Like people do not even respect the flashing lights of a police car right now. I mean, some, there's a serious accident, but wherever you're going is that important, right? It's like really that important. So, where are you at? Are, are there relationships that you have that you are not honoring? You're not doing your best to submit. What are they? We're going to close with communion and, and worship in a moment. But before we do that, like, think about this. Because your default nature is not to show honor. It's not to come under submission. And Peter wants us to know this isn't just to like be nice. It's not just to be nice and to show people respect. It's so that enemies of Christ might become family members. People who despise you and hate the cross might receive the grace of God. You let your light shine in an unbelieving world in order that others might be saved. And also, it's a powerful thing. It destroys institutions. It was Christians who who led the way in the abolishment of the evil institution of slavery. I've been saying this for years, but let's take, say, like the North Korean government. I am absolutely convinced that North Korea will not be transformed because of some military takeover. It's going to be transformed by the Christians there, the underground church who are speaking truth, saying their leader is not the true king of kings. There's a king named Jesus, and we are called to love in this horrific situation. It will crumble from the inside out. By the way, you ever notice how when you take out one bad guy, there's usually another bad guy that comes along? It's not to say justice isn't good. God established those institutions to do justice. But Christians know that this world is evil. And the only hope people truly have is the gospel changing hearts and minds. So we focus on hearts and minds before we think about violent overthrow. So what are the areas? Maybe some of you young people, you got issues with mom and dad. Maybe it's your employer. Maybe you need a heart check with politicians and elected officials. There are always going to be evil people in charge. There always will be. How are you living in light of that? Now, uh, Peter knows that this is not a, an easy thing to ask people to do. I mean, he just said, honor the emperor, and he knows, he can sense what's going to go to. He knows Christians are going to be slaughtered in about five to ten years. They can feel that coming. He's already been beaten by authorities. Peter's already been tortured on multiple occasions. But he still says, do these things. So it's like, what's the motivation behind that? How does someone get the backbone, the moral fortitude to actually obey Scripture? Well, Peter gives us the secret and the solution to that, and it's the secret and solution to every kind of question like this. 
you immediately go back to the gospel. You go back to Christ and what he did. For to this you have been called. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Why do you suffer injustice? Because that's how our story begins. Christ suffers. Christ is the first Christian doulos. He is the first slave. Only slaves were given the death of crucifixion. He dies the slave's death in order to free physical slaves and spiritual slaves, slaves to sin and ultimately give freedom because the Christian truth is that all people are made in his image. So that took time to rise. But he dies the first slave's death. He suffers injustice. He leads by example. And verse 25, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned. Goes back to identity. This is the story of Christianity. The father sent big brother to bring you back home. Who are you? You're God's son, God's daughter. You were strain. Jesus came and found you. He says, I'm preparing a place for you. In my father's house, my father's house, there's many rooms. That's family image. You've been adopted back into his family. And when you suffer wrongly in this world, you know that this is how the story began with Jesus. And you have an end times orientation. I suffer and I submit and I honor so that others might see my king. And when they see him on the day of visitation, that they might honor and glorify him rather than face his wrath. Let's stand as we take communion. The night Jesus was betrayed, he takes the bread and says, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He takes the cup and says, drink this until my return. And as you wait for my return, proclaim my death and resurrection. So Jesus we commit to declaring your death and resurrection until you return. This world is filled with evil at every level. There is greed, adultery, racism, oppression. The world is filled with evil stuff. And oftentimes we can get lofty visions about how we're going to go change the world. Just start with the people in your life. Just start by trying to introduce them to Jesus. And Christians do change the world. Christians do overthrow governments. 
but they do it not with the sword. They do it with the Christian doctrine of love one person at a time. And you'd be surprised how far that gets you if you focus on it. And so we're going to close singing to our king because no matter what earthly king or earthly institution we're under, all of those authorities are under the king of kings. And if they do evil, they will answer to him. And we take comfort in knowing that vengeance belongs to the Lord. So let's sing to our king and crown him ultimately as Lord of Lords.